Hello and welcome to The Wound Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convertech, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name's Rod Murray and I'm here both to read this bit at the start as well as make sure that we capture all the audio generated in today's conversation. Now, why might we want to do that? Well, because my co-host on this adventure, Dr. Francis Henshaw, has, as always, brought along a fellow expert to help us delve more deeply into the world of wounds. Dr. Fran, welcome. Who have you rustled up for us to chat with today and what, pray tell, might we be chatting about? Well, Rod, today we're talking about probably my favourite topic in wounds, which is diabetic foot ulcers. I thought you were going to say goo. <laughs> goo. It's the there word is like you use. Of, That's right. More than there others. is quite a lot of goo involved in diabetic foot ulcers, and I really can't think of a better person to discuss in the, this with the, my partner in crime for twenty years of uh, diabetic foot ulcers, Ian Reed. Um, so Ian Reed is actually a podiatrist. He's now elevated to the acting director of Allied Health, but he has a huge history of diabetic foot ulcers. And you know, one of the things that we often get asked is. Um, why do people with diabetes get foot ulcers? So, Ian, what are your bullet points on that one? Hello, thank you for having me today. Um, why do why do people develop diabetic foot ulcers? Um, I, I think it, a lot of it can be um, put under the umbrella of insidious onset um, and um, changes related to the diabetic foot um, can take many many years to develop. Um, and as a result, I think patients and their, sometimes their clinicians don't understand or recognise the extent of the damage that has been done to the foot. The ulceration that you then develop at the end of it is just, is just the pinnacle of the disease process that has gone on. Yeah, because I remember I was doing some research once and we got um, bits of skin. And I always remember this research because there was loads of mosquitoes around when I was doing it and I got bitten alive. <laughs> but we stretched this skin and the diabetic skin was much more brittle and broke much more easily than the control skin that was from um, the non-diabetic subjects. So it's it's quite interesting. Even when you're diabetic, your skin is more likely to break, isn't it? And that and that makes sense when you think biochemically. If if there's a lot of protein glycation that would happen over time. Oh, now you're talking. Oh yeah, my favourite topic. Um, where you um, the proteins in your connective tissues actually form a, a more rigid matrix with glucose. Um, so it makes sense that 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 the tissues would, in some respects, be less stretchy. I like my explanation better that they're less stretchy and they break more easily. I'm not interested in your glycation. I don't think any of our listeners will be either, but it was nice of you to give it a go. <laughs> did, did, dummy question here. Do diabetics know this is the case? I wouldn't say it's common knowledge because I didn't know it until I stood in this mosquito-infested room and um, stretched bits of skin for two evenings whilst a whole load of people were maintaining a car outside. So it was full of fumes as well as mosquitoes. Fabulous. What a um, time in life that must have been, Dr. Oh, Fred. We'll, get, we'll devote an episode to that whole, that whole, uh, <laughs> that whole period. But do, do diabetic people know that and, and would it be helpful if they did? I, my experience of diabetes education sessions with people is that yeah that that information is included in those sessions however do they take it in do we deliver it in a way that's understandable for them and do we tell them at the right time that they need to know it so that they can retain it i don't i don't 
know that I have the answer. I think that's it. Like there's an awfully lot of complicated things that happen. So a very small part of the puzzle is that your um, skin and your soft tissues might be more vulnerable to damage. And um, another problem that we have that's quite difficult for people to understand is that they lose the feeling in their feet. And when I say it's difficult for people to understand, it's because it's not a black and white thing. It's not you can feel them or you can't. There's, as Ian said, this very insidious or slow onset of losing the feeling in your feet. And it's a bit like, you know, when people are going deaf, to start with, they don't think that they're going deaf. They just think that the TV needs to be a bit louder because it's it's older and it's wearing out or something when it's actually their ears that are older and wearing out. Um, so I think this happens with, with people with diabetes. And a lot of the time, you know, you'll be up to your elbows in a wound in a foot and they'll they'll be like, oh, oh, I can feel that. And you're thinking, my goodness, if you had proper feeling in your feet, you would have actually fainted from the pain about 20 minutes ago. So Ian, to kind of illustrate this point to our viewers, can you give me an example of when somebody had lost the feeling in their feet, but they weren't really aware of it? I've got a very um, good example of that. Um, So this was um, a very long time ago. It was my first hospital job and I was working at a large hospital in Singapore. And it was Monday morning, and my first patient of the week, 8am, and um, he was really flustered when he was coming in to see me. He'd been rushing to get there. He'd gone back to Malaysia for the weekend and had spent the weekend with his family back in their kampong. And he'd caught the bus and across the causeway and back into Singapore for just to come and see me by 8am on Monday. He rushes in. He's hot, he's sweaty, he's breathing deeply. So I sat him down and we're having a chat at my desk. And when he was ready, I said, right, pop your shoes off and I'll get you up in the podiatry chair. So he pops his shoes off and he goes across the room and he sits on the podiatry chair. And, um, you know, I'm usually when I am examining someone, I will look at the whole limb. So I was probably pulling his trousers up above his knee so I could see the limb. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see some movement in the room. And I turned my head and I looked and this giant frog jumped out of his shoe. Oh, my goodness. And across the clinic room floor. He, obviously, this frog had climbed into his shoe back in the village in, in Malaysia. He'd stuffed his foot into that shoe. He'd worn it for however long it took on the bus to get back across into Singapore. So it'd done international travel, this frog. <laughs> yes, it, it was a stowaway. And this frog <laughs> jumped across my clinic on a Monday morning at 8 o'clock and he had no idea. And the brilliant part about it was... His response, it was kind of like, oh, I wonder how that happened. There was no there was no horror. There was no embarrassment. It was just this whimsy of, oh, I wonder where, wonder where that came from. I guess, I guess it's lucky he wasn't coming into Australia because the biosecurity implications <laughs> would have been horrific, wouldn't they? But, I mean, to me, that story says it all, that somebody who's managed to have a giant frog stuffed in their shoe for an international border-crossing trip... <laughs> And not really notice that it was in there. And not notice it is in there. I, I still to this day, I'm, I feel so sorry for that frog. Well, what happened to it? I was, was about to ask. So now we to... have to know what happened to the frog. Well, I, I stuck it in the sink um, for a, while I treated him, and then I got rid of him, and then I took the frog outside and let it go in the hospital grounds. 
So you that, might have introduced a new. I was about to say that, that <laughs> Singapore flog, frog plague of the nineteen nineties. We found this. It's our cane toads got into Australia. That's quite. Uh, look, yeah. it's lighthearted, but it, it it's telling, isn't it, Doctor Anna? That yeah, you can't imagine if you've got feeling you think you can't imagine ever being able to actually have something like that happen. Yeah, because you know when you think about it, you've got the volume or the space being taken up by the frog, you've got the texture of the frog, um, you you would have movement of that. It's got to be struggling. It's not just going to sit there and say, "Oh, this is okay," is it? It's going to be moving. You're right. Wow. Correct. And the, I mean, that's an extreme example, but the the common example that you would see as a podiatrist almost every day of the week is, and, and I make a point of doing this, I stick my hand inside every patient's shoe to see what's in there. Mm. And the number of times you pull out an old pair of socks that people have, they've taken their socks off and they've just put them the socks back in the shoe and then they've forgotten about it and they've been then wearing it and you're wondering why they have these lesions all over their toes. It's because there's all these things stuck in shoes. If you're enjoying these episodes and you'd like to be part of a like-minded community, why not join our Facebook group? Simply search The Wound Doctors ANZ on Facebook and click the Join Group button. If you'd like to get in touch for anything else, from questions to ideas for future episodes, please feel free to send an email to thewounddoctors at convertech.com. That's thewounddoctors at convertech.com. We look forward to any and all feedback. Now, back to the show. Uh, I'm intrigued by this notion. Why do people lose feeling in their feet, Fran, when they get diabetes? Well, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, basically, is it only the feet or is it the hands and other extremities as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all the extremities, but obviously because your feet are furthest away from the middle of you, it usually happens there first. And um, We know that this happens. It's very well documented. And, um, but there's about seven or eight theories as to why it happens, but nobody's really managed to kind of nail down the theory. So some people used to say, oh, well, it's because you've lost the, the blood supply to your feet, the nerves have died. But then we find people who've got perfectly good circulation, but they've still got nerves that don't work. So there's a variety of things and you could go on about this ad infinitum, but I would like to still have some viewers left. So I probably won't go down that track today and and bore them all but the other thing we have to know is that you can do tests to see if people have lost the feeling in their feet but these tests are really crude basically the best thing we can do is poke them with something and ask them if they can feel it well because it's not a black and white thing you might have lost some feeling in your feet but the, the the nerves that you poke might still be working so then you might think oh that's fine I've got all the feeling in my feet and then you go and cook yourself in front of a fire because the nerves that actually determine hot and cold aren't working so this is why we have to treat everybody who has diabetes as though they've lost a feeling in their feet and then we're more likely to be able to prevent bad things from happening by checking their feet every day and I think the other thing that often happens as well is people have problems with the blood supply to their feet don't they Ian? Yeah, um, and the lack of blood supply can happen across the entire segment of the limb. So in other diseases where you might see a discrete blockage in a, in a larger artery, often in diabetes it can be the entire segment of the limb and even out into the very small vessels, which makes it a challenge for vascular surgeons to um, uh, revascularize a limb as, uh, and get adequate blood, blood flow back into the limb. Dummy question, what is an ulcer? What sort of wound is an ulcer? Does it start as something else? What actually is an ulcer? What's the definition of an ulcer? 
When I was at foot school, the definition of an ulcer was a break in an epithelial surface. So it's basically a break in a skin, in the skin. But really, that would mean if you had a paper cut, that would come under the um, definition of an ulcer, which we probably wouldn't say a paper cut was an ulcer. So really, I think when we're looking at these hard to heal ulcers, it's usually something that's been around for more than two, three or four weeks, depending on which definition you look at, and that is not healing despite normal care. Yeah, something that isn't isn't moving through. It's what, what we would expect as the normal healing uh, process. Mm-hmm. Okay. And does it normally start with you stub your toe on something and break the skin, or does the skin just break of its own accord for some reason? It, it could be either. We do see uh, wounds that develop after an acute injury, but we also see wounds that develop after chronic overuse of a particular part of of the skin as well. And this is where we see um, the interplay between how your tissues respond to stress and strain with also how your nerves are leading to potentially deformity in the foot and how that foot is being encased in its environment. So what shoe, for example, and it's that interplay between each of those different factors that effectively can lead to the the skin and the tissues breaking down over time um, because they are being overused, for want of a better term. And I think that, you know, an example that comes to mind for me was uh, we had a patient and I think he'd had an ulcer and it had healed and he went on holiday to Byron Bay and he walked up to the lighthouse at Byron Bay, which is not a huge amount of of walking time but because he'd had ulcers previously he'd probably been off his feet and it was probably more than his usual amount of walking and then he ended up with another foot ulcer and it was probably because his feet weren't used to doing that much walking his sock might have had a lump in it or his shoe might not have fitted quite properly and if it was you or I Ian Rod we would have gone oh that's not quite right I'll take this off I'll rearrange my sock or I'm not going to go all the way up to the lighthouse because I'm getting a blister and you would actually do something about it but he merrily went there went back and then the blister had burst and then by the time he got back from Byron Bay to Sydney and into the clinic he had another horrible looking ulcer and so that's the kind of thing it's not people poor choices or poor behavior it's the fact that they don't have this thing that we call the gift of pain and and if when we map the way people's feet work over over a typical day we know that there's a lot of variability in in the way the foot moves and works with each step but when you lose sensation you also lose your ability to know where your foot is in space And so bodies try and be as stable as they can so that you don't fall over. And you will tend to develop this same pattern of footfall with each step because your body knows that that's the the gait or the stance that you need to prevent you from falling over, which is your head's primary role is to stop you from falling face first. So what you're saying in in effect, Ian, is that people develop a different pattern of walking when they have diabetes. Correct. And then coupling that with deformity, which can happen because muscles work differently in the foot with uh, neuropathy, coupled with weakened tissues and poor healing responses, and potentially a um, reduced blood flow, we end up with this perfect storm of, of tissues that just can't withstand those stresses. 
And it's a big problem, isn't it? Because there's a lot of variability in the data that's available. But they think that about uh, 15 to 30 percent of people with diabetes will get a foot ulcer. So it's not a, a rare thing that you're unlucky if you get one. And the other thing we know is that they reoccur quite a lot. So about 70 percent of people get another foot ulcer within five years. And interestingly, they often don't get it in the same place because I think what happens is once you've had an ulcer in one place, they're so careful about it that they offload it that they go and get an ulcer on the other foot. And that's quite a well-known fact. There was a paper published about that quite recently, wasn't there? Well, we, we you know, we, we, we've talked about the, the first cold week in winter with all the burns. But similarly, there's also the first hot week in summer where a people go to the beach and they they wander around on the tarmac because it's it's just across the footpath or they go on holidays you finally heal the ulcer you say to them right your ulcer's healed we still need to look after your foot though so i'm going to see you in x period of time and in their mind they say right this is my chance i'm all healed i'm off to that that lighthouse in byron bay that fran was talking about and you develop oh, so another ulcer. Now. Yeah, it's all you have to put it in the mind. Talking about people at the beach. When I first arrived in Australia, it was January, so it was really hot, and I was living in Manly, which is right by the beach. And I'd see all these surfers walking around in bare feet with a little surfboard tucked under their arm. And I didn't live far from the beach, so I thought, oh, I'll just walk down to the beach. It'll be fine. <laughs> well, I am like hopping, and I am like burning. I'm trying to find any blade of grass to stand on. I've got no shoes. There's no way back. Backwards, no way forward. And there were probably bendies in the grass with that. And I had really bad burns on my feet afterwards. <laughs> so you can't take a pommy out of British winter and get them to walk on um, concrete pavements like surfers can, who've been doing it since they were knee high to a grasshopper. It does so, take. It takes a week or two at the start of summer to get used to it. If you oh, I've never tried it again, so Rod. <laughs> it does take a while. Dr. Ian, we know that with everything, prevention is better than cure. Is prevention with diabetic foot ulcers possible or is it a reality that you are going to get foot ulcers if you have diabetes? No, it's not a reality. Um, There are things that people can do to reduce their risk. Um, And when they do have um, some form of injury to their foot, to seek prompt attention to it to try and prevent it from going down the ulceration route. Um, so prevention is critical. Um, even when we look at the rates of mortality following uh, a primary closure of a wound, which is when a wound, sorry, a secondary closure of a wound where it has been able to close by itself versus an amputation, um, you can see that people do live better if we were able to close that wound with wound care rather than uh, it getting to a point where we can no longer manage it and, and your only option is to amputate. So those preventative strategies, both primary and secondary prevention, are critical. So what do you mean by primary and secondary prevention, Ian? So if if you were my fr- patient friend and you had happened to have diabetes, but you hadn't yet had any measurable challenges or, or problems with your foot, I'd be teaching you about how to inspect your foot, how to moisturise your skin, how to take care of your skin and nails. Uh, not how to, to choose... walk down to the beach with your <laughs> shoes on. Yeah. I wish have, you'd have... told me that 20 years ago, Ian. I, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't know you would... <laughs> Um, so, and, and those primary prevention measures, are, they sound like really common sense, but they're the basis of what we need to do. 
and and then we add to it. So once, Fran, if you were my patient, you then developed an ulceration, I'd be talking about how do we prevent infection? How do we take the pressure off of this wound? How do we improve your blood flow to the foot if we need to? And how do we prevent you from then going on and having serious complications secondary to that wound? That would be the conversation when you were saying, you need to wear this special shoe, you need to change this dressing so often, and no, you can't play 18 holes of golf every Saturday (laughs) until it's fixed. So, Rod, would you listen to someone if they said that to you? I would, although golf, golf is my thing, as you know, Fran, and for everyone will have a thing that will tempt them to say, well, I'm doing all the other stuff right. Surely I can do this one wrong thing the doctor said not to. And I guess that's probably the danger. And the problem with prevention, Dr. Fran, is nobody comes to see you when they're well, do they? They don't come to see you until they've already got a problem. So prevention's part. Yeah, and it's hard to reach these people. And it's, you know, especially when we've got quite a diverse population in Australia. And, you know, like I've got some colleagues who are trying to do diabetes um, primary prevention in Samoan communities because, you know, they have their very different way of of life and um they've managed to get to these people by turning up to the churches that they go to because that's you know a a very important thing in their community so i think that you know we really have to find ways of reaching people with these messages before they get in a pickle because as you rightly say rod once they've turned up at royal north shore and they've waited for their appointment at the high-risk foot clinic and they've got a big hole in their foot telling them that they need to inspect their feet every day is you know that horse has bolted hasn't it a little it? bit late brings me to my final question dr ian which is the one i often come back to when i think about these things is the role of carers if you're living with somebody who has diabetes or you're seeing somebody regularly as part of the caring profession what are the sorts of things to look out for that might give us a bit more of a head start than all the skin's broken and now an ulcer starting to form yeah so carers are critical they're critical as a second pair of eyes, and they're critical to try and reinforce a lot of the messages that clinicians may have given the patient themselves. The other benefit of a carer is that they're able to also listen to that messaging and have another pair of ears across it so that they can hopefully understand it a bit better and they can frame it for the patient when they leave the office. If I was talking to a carer, I'd be asking them, to touch, feel, look, press, question, um, and to be inquisitive. If there's a red spot there, when they put some finger pressure on it, does it blanch or does it stay red? Is it hot? What can you see? What are the signs that you're observing as a carer? And what's not normal? What's changed? Because when things are changing over time, that's when we need to do something quickly rather than letting it get to an ulceration. Something's happened. You've given me another idea for a whole other episode. Communication, what, what is said and what we hear. <laughs> There's a whole right, other we, element to all of this, isn't there? Which is, it doesn't matter what you tell enough fodder to keep us going for years, yeah, the wound doctors. Abs- I can tell you, yeah. there's, there's an awful lot to really get to the nitty gritty of. Well, the sorts of things you deal with, they're ongoing conditions, aren't they, Fran? And so things like communication in care has become super important, more so than a broken arm and you put some plaster on and you check it in a few weeks and then the plaster comes off and and that's healed. You're dealing with things that aren't healing, aren't you? And so 
these things. Yeah, and we also important. have an incredibly high proportion of um, what we unfortunately term as frequent flyers. So people who we heal them and then they, they come back again with, with another problem, which, you know, is in line with all the statistics. Yeah. And probably want it fixed under warranty half the time frame. (laughs) (laughs) Fixed this last time, it's broken again. It must be under warranty. Dr. Friend, is there anything else we need to know from Dr. Ian on this particular topic before we let him go? No, I think that he's given us quite a few words of wisdom and, and things to think about there, Rod. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Dr. Ian. As with all of our guests, I've enjoyed listening to and talking with you. It's always uh, educational and eye-opening, certainly for a dummy like me, and I hope the listeners are getting something out of it as well. But thank you for your time today. Thank you. And Dr. Fran, always a pleasure to catch up with you. My pleasure. Thanks, Rod. 